Please stand for the reading of God's word. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living, who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw all toil and all skill and work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and is striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and is striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who had come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and is striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. There is a lot of evil in the world. And as followers of Jesus, we are called to name that evil, to grieve that evil, to lament that evil, to repent of that evil, and to turn away from evil. We are also called to overcome evil with good. By the power of the Holy Spirit. Now I'm going to read a few verses to show you how frequently the word of God makes this point. Psalm 34 verse 14 says, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Amos 515 says, hate evil and love good. Isaiah 1, 16 and 17 says, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, plead the widow's cause. 
Romans 12.9 says, Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Romans 12.21 says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now the idea here is simple enough. Following Jesus requires us to reject evil and to cling and pursue what is good. Every day we reject the evil that is in the world. We reject the evil that is in our own souls. We turn away from it. And we seek God's forgiveness for our own evil choices. And every day we choose to love what is good. We choose to pursue goodness. We choose to do good. And this idea is simple and easy to grasp. But it is. Not very easy to live out. If we're going to be the kind of people that Chauncey is talking about, people who know how to discern and name the evil of the world and then to overcome it with good, then we're going to need to be people of spiritual wisdom. Mm -hmm. Having good intentions is not enough. Even having good intentions while being passionate and energetic is not enough. The Bible says zeal without knowledge is not good. We need wisdom if we're going to live this way. And if we're going to become a people of wisdom, that means we need humility of heart to be instructed by God's wisdom. And then we need to be willing to practice the Habits and the skills of faithfulness. Now, I'm intentionally here using words like instruction, practice, skill, habit. And we need to be comfortable with those words because those are the, that's the language of discipleship. Those are the words of discipleship. And if we ask the question, what are we doing here today? Well, we're here to celebrate and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're here to worship God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we're here to grow in maturity as disciples of Jesus. So everybody say discipleship. Discipleship. Now sometimes I think God's family, we, in God's family we make the mistake of feeling like working hard to grow in maturity is one thing. And celebrating the gospel of God's mercy for sinners is another thing. As if we're playing off. Playing God's mercy and our effort off of each other like they're opposites. But that's not true. That's not real. The gospel declares that Jesus Christ died because God loves foolish, sinful, immature people. Isn't that wonderful news? Every day of my life, I am thankful that God loves foolish, immature, sinful people like us. But God's love is so good that God doesn't want to leave us to wallow in our folly and sinfulness and immaturity. He wants to call us to maturity and wisdom and holiness so that we will be the kind of people who can discern the difference between good and evil and can overcome evil with good. Now, Ecclesiastes is here to help with that. And in particular, Ecclesiastes chapter 4 is here to help us name evil and discern evil while becoming the kind of people who can do good in the world over the long haul. 
So there's two things we're going to talk about in the text today. First thing we're going to do is talk about how this text names evil. The, the word for naming evil is lament. Everybody say lament. Lament. Lament is the spiritual discipline of coming into God's presence to name the evil and brokenness of the world, including our own evil and brokenness. And there's three laments in Ecclesiastes 4 that we're going to spend some time thinking about. But we've been doing a lot of lamenting for the last few months. And what we really want to focus on today is there's two sacred invitations also in this text. The text is inviting us in two specific ways to become the kind of people who can resist evil and who can overcome evil with the goodness of God. And the, the two sacred invitations are this, the invitation to cultivate a quiet soul and the invitation to walk in the community of hope. So everybody say quiet. Quiet. And everybody say community. Community. Without further ado, though, let's jump in and look at the three laments in this text. Now, the first one that we're going to look at, we find in verses 13 through 16. Now, I'm not going to read that for you. And here's what the lament is. In a foolish world, wisdom is quickly forgotten. In a foolish world, wisdom is quickly forgotten. Now, I'm going to summarize what it says in 13 through 16. You can go back and read it this week. I encourage you to study this passage. But here's basically what he says. There's a, wise, me, there's a foolish old king and there's a wise young man. This wise young man is born poor. He's born poor. He spends some time in prison. But he uses his wisdom to grow and to take the place of this foolish old king. And when he becomes king, this, this poor but wise youth becomes king and he leads a lot of people. So many that he couldn't even count. And the difficulty is, the lament is that after just a few generations of leading this way, this poor, wise youth is forgotten. He's forgotten. In our broken, foolish world, even a life directed by wisdom is quickly forgotten. And that's nothing to lament. That's 13 through 16. Now, in verses 4 through 8, we see our second lament, and that is that neither greedy toil nor lazy rest can bring satisfaction. Neither greedy toil nor lazy rest can bring satisfaction. Now, in the first three chapters of Ecclesiastes, we frequently lamented the fact that Toil in this broken world leads to temporary results that cannot bring lasting peace or joy. No amount of hard work can secure eternal happiness for us. No amount of hard work can save us from death. And now Ecclesiastes adds a few more layers to this lament that we've already been looking at. Verse 4 looks beneath the surface of our work to examine our motivations. And what the sage discovers is not very flattering. Read with me in verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. The reason there are so many workaholics in the world is that we are driven by pride, by greed and competitiveness. Our sinful passion to be better and look better and to have more, have more than other people drives us to toil and toil and toil and work and work and work. In ways that can never lead to lasting peace or joy. 
Now, skipping down to verses 7 and 8, we read this. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother. Yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. See, verses 7 and 8 take this further, this point about working and working and working to try to achieve more than somebody else. And he's saying that a lot of people are successful in their careers, but they are bankrupt in their relationships. They're lonely. And human beings are made for relationships. That means that no matter how much we toil and no matter how much we succeed, we will never be happy as long as our relationships are broken. Hmm. And some of us come from families where that has been evidently the case. Mm -hmm. Now, we might start to think that wisdom would tell us to just quit working so hard and stop worrying about our careers. But verse 5 is going to tell us that laziness, the opposite of workaholism, isn't any better. Look at verse 5. The fool folds his hands. And eats his own flesh. If you're lazy, you're going to devour yourself. So what we see is that most human lives on the planet are characterized either by greedy toil or by lazy rest. And both of these are paths to sorrow and self-destruction. So the third lament in this text is really profound and really heavy. We're going to take a second to soak this one up. The third lament in this text is in the first few verses. And what the text says is that the world is filled with oppression. And there's nobody to comfort the oppressed because power is on the side of their oppressors. Let's just read what it says in verse one. One more time. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. This word oppression means abusing our power in a way that hurts or exploits other people. So when the text talks about the oppressed, it's talking about people who are being trampled and exploited and they're suffering because of the sinful actions of other people who have more power than they do. There's lots of different kinds of power that could just be physical strength, could be economic power or political power or social power, any other kind of power. Now, power in itself is not bad. God often gives us power, which we're supposed to steward to bless other people. But the problem is, because of our sinfulness, very often the the very power that God gave us to to bless people and to cultivate peace in God's good creation, we use it the other way. We're just worried about ourselves, so we end up using and exploiting and hurting others. We could... Just stop to ask the question, so who are the oppressed? Who are the oppressed and who are the oppressors? And I would say if we look deep enough, probably all of us have been the oppressors and most of us have been the oppressed at some level. 
Because probably all of us at one time or another has used in some God-given power a privilege or resource we had in a way that hurt others. Probably most of us have been hurt by other people who did that to us. But there's a lot of extreme examples of oppression in our world. We don't have to look at big social systems. We can just start by looking to the home, to the family, which is supposed to be the, the institution of love in which human beings begin to know God and to learn to see his goodness in the world. But so often, parents who have been given power, they've been given authority to use it to take care of their kids. It's a good deal for the babies that they have parents that are stronger than them. Because the parents are supposed to use that power to protect their kids and to clothe their kids and to feed their kids. But so often, parents in their sinfulness and in their anger and in their immaturity neglect their children or even end up using their words or their actions in a way that hurts and abuses their kids. And, and when the kids cry out, the, the text asks us to look at their tear-streaked faces. They're crying out for help, but there's no one to hear them because the very people they're supposed to trust The powerful people that are supposed to protect them are the ones who are hurting them. Or we could talk about husbands or boyfriends who have more physical strength. But instead of using that to protect and serve, they use that to hurt with their words or with their actions. Or we could move from the home to the workplace. There's all kinds of opportunities for Christian workers and Christian business leaders to use economic resources and business skills to bless people. To bless customers, to bless employees, to bless investors. But so often, in all sorts of petty little ways that have a huge accumulative effect, what we do is use our resources and power to look after ourselves. Even if it hurts other people. This could look like something as small as, I'm a manager now, so instead of making the schedule in a way that's considerate of the needs of other people that work for me, I'm going to make a schedule in a way that gives me the easiest way out even if it causes great hardship for other people. Or it could be at a higher level of, there's employees that need to be paid well, they need good benefits, and I'm in the position of power to make those decisions, but I'd rather maximize profits in a way that mistreats people. The Bible also asks us to notice that in human society, there's certain categories of people who are particularly vulnerable for oppression. The Bible lists, These categories of people over and over when it talks about the poor, it talks about the widow and the fatherless, talks about those who are disabled. It talks about immigrants and ethnic minorities. And in every human civilization, such people are especially vulnerable to oppression. And according to God, the government and the law is supposed to be protecting those people from exploitation. But often, sadly, because of our sin, the very law that's supposed to be protecting people becomes itself a tool of oppression, which is why the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 10, 1 and 2 says, woe to those who make unjust law laws to those who issue oppressive decrees to rob the poor of their rights and to withhold justice from the oppressed of my people. So I think we're aware, I hope we're aware of the fact that In the United States in the year 2020, there are lots of tears of grief and of anger and of hurt associated with the public and tragic loss of human lives like the lives of Ahmaud Arbery or Breonna Taylor or George Floyd, who were made in the image of God. 
And I, I hope this text is helping us to be aware here that those issues, they're part of the reason there's so much pain and frustration is that those issues are tragic in themselves. Whenever there's an untimely, untimely loss of a human life, a person made in the image of God, that's tragic. But people, so many people are seeing them through the lens of a history of families and generations that have suffered from a situation in which the law that was supposed to protect them legally dehumanized them so that their wages were stolen through slavery or so that they suffered through Jim Crow or whatever the case may be. Or we could turn our attention to perhaps the most vulnerable group of human beings in the world, which is the unborn. And we could notice that in our country, there's about 800,000 unborn children who are legally killed every year, including right down the street from where we are on Southwest 44th Street. And it's a great tragedy. And I can tell you, friends, that I've talked to parents, to moms, who were in a situation of desperation and terminated a pregnancy, aborted a child, and then afterwards were filled with regret. And it's so beautiful to see how the gospel can bring healing to that brokenness. I want to say if there's any mom or dad in this room who has had an abortion, what I want you to hear is Jesus loves you. Jesus can heal your wounds. He can forgive your mistakes. But one of the things that I've also heard over and over from people who have made that decision and later regretted it is often what drove them to the decision was the, the same despair that verses 2 and 3 of our text are talking about. This is why poor people and people who are particularly vulnerable to oppression disproportionately have abortions. Look, look at what the text says. After surveying the pervasive reality of evil and oppression in human society, the sage says, And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. This is one of those moments in the book of Ecclesiastes where the sage slips into a kind of despair which can be very destructive. And we need to season the sage's despair with the rest of the Bible, with the hope of the gospel. But first, I think seeing this moment of despair should cause us to be sympathetic and empathetic to people who are driven to making bad choices because of their frustration and pain with a broken world in which evil is everywhere. Now, Chauncey read to us earlier the words from Isaiah 1 where we're told to seek justice and correct oppression. We need to be moved to do something about this. First of all, to examine ourselves. Make sure that we never misuse the power God has given us to bless people in a way that ends up hurting people. But also, we need to think about how can we help those who are vulnerable in our communities. But what I want to say right now is sometimes the first and most important step to doing good is just pausing to really do what the text is doing, which is to see the tears of the oppressed and to grieve and to call out to God. So we're just going to take a moment right now to be silent as a group. And I want to ask you just to bow your head in silence. And if you desire to say a prayer to God about the truths we've been hearing from the scripture. And then I'm going to say a quick prayer for us before we move on. Our Father in heaven, we need your healing mercy. Forgive us for every time we've misused our power in a way that hurt people. 
Forgive us for every time we've been complacent when others have suffered unjustly. For everybody in this room, I'm sure there's many who have experienced the very traumas that I've been naming. and I know that there are, and I just pray for healing mercy right now. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would move in our midst to be a, make us a people of wisdom and maturity so that we can bear witness to the gospel of grace and so that we can do good that overcomes evil in our world. In Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, we've been lamenting some dark realities. But now I want you to hear me say that the light of God is stronger than the world's darkness. Evil will not triumph and oppression will not last forever. That's right. Jesus will win. He's going to win. And this is our hope. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He rose again. He's coming back to make all things new. And I've looked at the faces of undocumented teenagers who have lost hope. And I will tell you that Jesus can give hope back. That's right. And I've looked in the faces of kids who were treated unfairly by their parents. And I will tell you that Jesus can give hope back. Jesus is going to wipe wipe the tears away from every eye of his children. He's going to mend every wound. He's He's going to redeem every heartache. So I want you to repeat after me and just say, Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our hope. Now, saying Jesus is our hope does not mean that we should just sit around and passively wait for Jesus to come back. Because Jesus has called us to experience his hope and healing and then to join him in taking his hope and healing into the world. Mm -hmm. He's called us to that. And our hope in Christ should compel us toward redemptive action and toward creative action. The Spirit of God is at work in this room to equip and empower and to inspire a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-generational army of Christ followers who are filled with the Spirit who will take His hope and healing into the world for decades to come. It's not enough for us to name the brokenness. It's not even enough for us to grieve the brokenness. Jesus is inviting us to become the kind of people who can see the brokenness, can grieve the brokenness, and who can be his instruments of hope and healing in the world. And for that, we need to respond to God's grace with an active faith. We need to learn some truths. We need to to practice some holy habits. We need to gather some sacred skills to live out. So with that in mind, we want to turn to these two sacred invitations in our text. Church family, would you like to be the kind of people who can be God's instruments of healing in the world? Then we need to hear the two invitations. The first one is the invitation to cultivate a quiet soul in the midst of the world's chaos. Look with me again at verse 6. Verse 6 says, better is a handful of quietness. That's our key word. Everybody say quietness. Quietness. 
quietness. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. On the surface, this verse teaches us a balance between the greedy workaholism and lazy rest that Chauncey was talking about earlier. It teaches us diligence with moderation. It affirms the value of hard work while also urging us to make space in our lives for the more important stuff that's easy to neglect. Make space in your life for core relationships. Make space in your life for quiet. Make space in your life for prayer. Make space in your life for rest. This wisdom is very similar to a theme that recurs in Proverbs. I'll just read you two verses. Proverbs 23, 4 says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. Proverbs 17, 1 says, Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. So the text is teaching us what we might call today life-work balance. But I would say that beneath the surface, it's also doing something deeper than that. Because this is the first time in which Ecclesiastes invites us into a spiritual practice of silence, of quiet, that's going to keep coming up throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. It's not just about the absence of noise. It's about something positive. It's about cultivating a soul that is attentive to the presence of God and to the word of God. And that's at peace, trusting in God. Let me just show you two places it comes up later in Ecclesiastes. First, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Chauncey and I are going to preach on chapter 5 next week, so I won't say very much right now. But let's just read these two verses. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know what they are doing. Do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Here, the theme of quietness in the presence of God comes to the forefront. And essentially, it's saying any fool can talk to God, but it takes a wise person to listen to God. It takes a wise person. Sometimes we just got to be quiet long enough to hear God. Quiet here is more than the absence of noise, friends. It's about a soul that is attentive. This is hard for us because we live in a very distracted and busy and overstimulated generation, don't we? Mm -hmm. I won't ask you how many times your mind has wandered during the sermon, nor how long you have checked your phone, because I'm not trying to judge anybody, but we can maybe all testify that we need help with this, don't we? <laughs> Cultivating a quiet heart that's attentive to the word of God. Similar theme comes up in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 17. It says, The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Let me read that again. Ecclesiastes 9, 17. The words of the wise heard in quiet. Everybody say quiet. Quiet. That same Hebrew word that we saw in Ecclesiastes 4, 6. They're better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. What the text is saying is, if we want to be people of wisdom who can do good in the world. We need to be people who learn how to tune out the never-ceasing political noise to hear the wisdom of God. Could that be more relevant to our world right now? We need 
to learn how to tune out the noise because the political chatter so far has us at the world right. That's right. And so often the voices shouting from one end of the political spectrum or the other or the center for that matter, there's a lot of noise, but there's not deep healing. There's not deep change because we need God and God's wisdom. There's going to be deep healing and deep change. Now, next week, we'll have a chance to go deeper into this theme, talk about it as it's developed not only in Ecclesiastes, but in the Psalms and in the life of Jesus. But for now, I just want to say that cultivating a quiet soul is partly about having a certain disposition of heart, and it's partly about a certain rhythm of life. A certain disposition of heart means this. We need to become people who rest in the grace of God as it is in Jesus Christ. People who trust in God's love. People who know our identity in Christ. Because it's true that Christians are supposed to be people of action. We're supposed to do good. We're supposed to share the gospel and make disciples and care for people in need and be zealous for good works. But here's the thing. Frantic action is usually not redemptive action. Did you hear that? We're frantically, busily all the time just acting, acting, acting. That's usually not very redemptive. We could go further. If I'm acting fundamentally out of a motivation of insecurity, I'm trying to do something that makes me feel like my life is worthwhile, that kind of a motivation for action usually doesn't bear a whole lot of lasting fruit. And if I'm just reacting against the evil of the world in anger, listen, action that's motivated primarily by anger, not only is it usually not creative, it's, it's most often destructive over the long haul. Which means we're supposed to be people of active, uh, people of action, but the most creative and redemptive kind of action flows from a heart that is composed and quiet and resting in the grace of God. Now, to become that kind of people, we need to learn rhythms of life. And if you want something super practical right now, I would just say to everybody in the room, how can you make more space to tune out all the noise, to cease from your work, to get rid of all the distractions, and to be silent in the presence of God and hear his word. How can you make more space for that in your life? Because the more space you make for it, the more opportunities you're giving God through the scripture and through the Holy Spirit to show you who he is and who you are and how he's calling you to act with creativity and with perseverance and with wisdom to do good in the world. Let's cultivate quiet souls, man. Now we're going to turn from the invitation to quiet to the invitation to community. Look with me in verses 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, If two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two can withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, what this passage is saying is that whether you are at work, whether you're at home, or whether you're on a journey somewhere, two are better than one. And if you got three, that's even better. That's what he's saying. Now, this is a word that I think we need to hear, Christ Community Church, because we are a church that cares a lot about mission, a lot about mission. 
As we discussed earlier, there is a lot of evil, there's a lot of oppression in the world, and God is using his people to bring hope and healing into the world. And many of you are doing that. You're mentoring kids at after-school programs. You're volunteering for nonprofit healthcare organizations. You're teaching the Bible to kids and to adults in our neighborhoods. Many of you have chosen your vocation because you're mission-minded. You want to do accounting, not to save a bottom line, but to help people. You're teaching in schools that don't pay very well. You're working at clinics that serve vulnerable populations. You're discipling people. You're working hard to get diplomas or degrees or advanced degrees, not for your own ambition, but to bring resources back to the community. You're tutoring kids and fostering kids and raising kids who are going to love Jesus. You care about God's mission to bring hope and healing in the world. And that's all really good. And what we see in verses 9 through 12 is that if we want to have a good reward for our toil, then we need to open ourselves to vulnerable, interdependent communities of love. If we want to persevere through the long, cold nights of ministry, we need to open ourselves to vulnerable, interdependent communities of love. If we want to withstand the world, the flesh, and the devil, they're trying to get us off track on the Christian life. We need to open ourselves to vulnerable, interdependent communities of love. We've got to be in community. Now, we need vulnerable, interdependent communities of love for two reasons. One is to resist evil. Sin ain't no joke. Sin ain't no joke. Sin will destroy your life. It will make you think that up is down and down is up. It will make you think you are right when you are dead wrong. Mm -hmm. And sin is deceptive at its root. It's so deceptive that it can be difficult to see it in yourself. And even when you see it in yourself, sin will make you think the best thing to do with that information is to hide it. Now, I am not a healthcare professional. And I don't appear to be or long to be. (laughs) But I can tell you this. If I have a wound on my arm, The wrong thing for me to do is whenever I pass by Dr. A. Bear or Miss Layla or someone else, I cover it up and hide it. That is the wrong way to get healing. I'm not a healthcare professional. I can tell you that's the truth. If I want healing, I've got to expose that wound and get some medicine in that pump. I've got to do that. But yet sin will make us think that the best way to get healing from our sin is to cover it up and to hide it. To not expose it. Don't let anybody know about it. Now, here's the truth, friends. Over the last 10 years, I have seen folks that have been actively sharing the gospel in the neighborhood and their marriage falls apart. Mm. I've seen friends that have been sharing the gospel with adults and seeing folks come to know Christ. And then they get sidetracked by an amusement that became a habit, that became an addiction that they never dealt with. Mm -hmm. I've seen folks that have been out mentoring kids in the community. But they never let anybody know about a sin pattern in their life, and they were totally sidetracked. Mm -hmm. This is real. Sin ain't no joke. And here's the reality. Jesus came to rescue us from our sin. Mm -hmm. So if Jesus is Lord, he has already taken the penalty for your sin. But we still wrestle with it. Isn't that the truth? That's true. And what, what God is so profoundly made the reality is that often he wants to use you and me to help you and me get over our sin. Mm -hmm. 
He wants to do that. Paul in Galatians 6 verses 1 and 2 alerts us to the sobering reality that we were never meant to fight evil within us or around us alone. When he says this in Galatians 6, 1 and 2, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one look into yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. What Paul is calling us to is to a vulnerable community that is open with each other that you can see into my life and I can see into your lives. We can help each other on this journey and to an interdependent community that we are bearing one another's burdens. We're bearing that load together. So we have to do it on our own. See, sin thrives in the dark. So if we want to get serious about fighting sin, we've got to get into a community where we can bring sin into the light. So I want to ask you this. Who can see into your life? Who knows the deep struggles of your heart? Who knows you so well that they know the scripts that the enemy uses to accuse you and to try to condemn you? And who is in your life that is speaking God's truth in those places to help you overcome that lie? We need each other, friends. We need vulnerable, interdependent communities of love to resist evil. Mm -hmm. But we also need vulnerable, interdependent communities of love To persevere in God's mission. We need that. How many of y'all have been tired over the past few months? Yeah, 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 yeah. How many of you have ever thought, maybe not even in the past few months, but just in your life, how many of you ever thought about throwing in the towel and saying, this is not, I just can't do this anymore? See, the work that God has called us to is hard work, fam. It is exhausting work. But it is really good work. Mm -hmm. It is good work. And it is the work that God has called us to do together. Mm-hmm. There's that African proverb that says, if you want to go far, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Now listen, I'd rather go far than fast. Here's why. Systems of oppression will not change overnight. Schools and school systems cannot bridge an achievement gap of three to five years overnight. Communities in which little boys are criminalized and little girls are devoured before their 20s will not change overnight. So I would rather go far than go fast. And about 10 years ago, a mentor of mine encouraged me to find a group of friends who know and love Jesus and who are seeking God's kingdom, and then to grow old with them. And I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you. Because there's so many opportunities to do that, friends. Jared is leading a neighborhood ministry team, and those folks on that team are sharing the gospel with friends out in the community. They're seeing adults and kids come to know Christ. They're starting after school programs. They're building family and neighborhoods. What would it look like if you were to jump on that team and lock arms with them and decide, I'm going to run far with them. I'm going to grow old with them. 
Gavin is out sharing the gospel with his team on college campuses, giving young adults a vision for their life that is beyond themselves. What would it look like if you were to drop everything and jump on that team and lock arms with them and run far with them and grow old with them? How would the college campuses be different? How would the world be different? What would it look like if you were to jump onto the school's ministry team and come mentor youth and read to kids and celebrate teachers, not just for a semester, but lock on, let's do this for life. How would our schools and our neighborhoods be different? What if you were to jump into Christ Community Health Health Coalition and volunteer or go back to school, become a doctor and then work there? Well... And lock arms with them and do it for the rest of your life. What if you were to join Morgan and Jordan and Melissa at St. Paul's and lock arms with them and do it for the rest of your life? How would our community be different Hmm. if we were to run far together? Let's do good together, friends. Hmm. God is inviting us to quiet and to community that resists evil and that pursues and perseveres in God's mission together. Mm. That was a really compelling vision for my life that Johnson just said. <laughs> Let's do it. Do it. Friends, we're about to take the Lord's Supper. And in the Lord's Supper, we're seeing this tangible reminder that Jesus Christ is saying, I love you, even if this week you were super foolish and sinful and the opposite of everything we just talked about trying to be. I love you, and I'm giving myself to you in grace. And in the Lord's Supper, we're also hearing the word of Christ inviting us to go deeper into fellowship with God so that we can become wise, mature, skilled, holy people through whom God's redemption can break into the world. So when we come take the supper, we're just coming in humble, simple faith, saying, Jesus, you're enough. Jesus, transform me. I want to walk with you on this long journey. Let me say a a prayer for you, and then we'll take the supper together. Lord, what a good word. We do continue to grieve the brokenness in the world, but we thank you that we do not grieve without hope, that you can heal what is broken. And I pray that the word that was spoken today would go deep into our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would help us to trust Christ, to become people with composed, quiet souls that are attentive to your presence and your voice, who lock arms in community to do good until you call us home. Pray in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.